We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is a True Faith Patron podcast. It's Greatest Game. I'm Norman Riley, and I'm delighted to be joined by the, the man, the legend, Mark Corby. Um, <laughs> Mark, obviously, you know, he's pretty much Newcastle's second biggest historian behind Paul Jonah. Um, you know, there's there's actually, I would actually say, you know, I would actually say he's possibly above Paul Jonah, but we'll not get into that argument right now. Um, Mark, thank you for doing this, mate. Um, you are going to talk about no, what is, no in my opinion... You're going to talk about what is, in my opinion, probably one of Newcastle United's biggest games in, in, in the entire history of the club. I mean, that may sound ridiculous given the fact that, obviously, you know, I've been alive for the for the entire history of the club. But if you look at Newcastle United as a football club, we've never been, you know, we've never been uh, below what would be called the second division or the championship now. Um, yeah. So there are, there are games that are just, I suppose, absolutely monumental. And the one that you're going to talk about, in my opinion, is. Um, so... You just you just take it away, Mark. Tell us tell us a match you you're going to talk about, um, and we'll we'll take it from there, mate. Yeah, we're we're going to go back to um, the second of May, nineteen ninety two, um, Leicester City away, um, an old second division as it was then, um, second division fixture, the final game of the season. Uh, the reason the reason I've picked this is 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 mainly because it was the third of a three-game spell, which for me will just never be beaten, in, as far as I'm concerned. And it would take something very, very special to beat um, the final three games of that season. Um, you know, one, the brink of disaster, brink of uh, relegation to the third division, as you say, for, would have been my, my first and only time. Um, and the risk of that was, um, you know, going out of business because the club was, you know, riddled with debt. Um and basically it was down to one man, as in Mr. Kevin Keegan, to uh, try and save us literally from disaster, mate. Absolutely. Um. Obviously the the Portsmouth match the yeah. week earlier, um, which David Kelly scored that you know that that famous goal, um, a goal that you know merits a statue of David Kelly outside the St James's Park, <laughs> in my opinion, um, or at least a bust. Maybe not a statue, but a bust. That'll be a. Uh, you know, like a bust in Newcastle Airport, sort of, maybe better than the Ronaldo one that's in Madeira. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah, wasn't Madeira. But um, that side with players like David Kelly and Gavin Peacock, for me, I mean, obviously, like you, were a similar age. They, those players, those two players especially, I mean, 
they'll always be fondly remembered just because I think they, were, they played such an important part in, in keeping the club alive during what was a really bleak era. Um, but we'll, we'll get on. We'll get on to the game. Um, just, just take me through your your pre match expectations and mm-hmm. and why. How, how were you feeling? Was your, was your confidence up? Was it down? Were you nervous? Um, you know, what, why was it one or the other? Really? Well, just to recap. I mean, to paint paint a picture. Really, I was thirteen at the time, um, and not only was I going to the first team games, I was going to reserve games as well. I used to love going up to the ground. I used to love watching any game, and even during like the um, the Easter holidays. Um, or the summer holidays, we'd go to the ground, we'd, we'd try and catch the players. And I remember the build-up to this one because there was two things that stick out in my mind is I wasn't a season ticket holder then, but obviously I went to all the, all the home games. Um, a couple of lads who were a year above me at school, them had season tickets in the East Stand. And Hi. when the tickets were announced that they were for sale, we only got 1,800 tickets. So last time we were going for promotion, we had 1,800 tickets and there was no chance of us getting them. But I spoke to the lads and said, look, look, are you going? And they didn't do away games. So um, they gave us their season tickets. And you could get two tickets per season ticket then. Um, so goes up the ground. Only three of us wanted to go. So we got three tickets out of the four we could have got. So you could say we wasted one. But obviously, in hindsight, if I had any sense about it, I could have got a fourth ticket and sell it on, you know. But... Um, then a couple of days later, another one of my mates wanted to go and I had sold out. So we went back up to the ground after um, to catch the players after training, when they used to train at the old Benmel uh, training pitch. And they used to always go back to the ground afterwards. And uh, Well, I don't know what they did, to be honest, but they used to always hen- end up going back there. And David Kelly come out and I said to him, all right, Ned, uh, the game, etc., the old club. Had a bit cracking that with him. I says, look, is there any chance you can get us a ticket when the last hasn't got one? Desperate. And he, uh, he just turned around and says, mate, he says, my family alone who want to go, he says, I, I need hundreds myself. He went, there's just <laughs> no chance I can get you, get you a ticket. Um, you know, so unfortunately, he missed out. But it was nice just to sort of how close the players were, the, uh, the fans then. You just come fair, out fair play to you as well for being so brazen at the age of 13 to do something like that. Oh, well, well done, mate. Definitely, mate. You know, you've got to be cheeky. But, uh, but yes, uh, so yeah, we, 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 as you say, we had beat Portsmouth. Um, the other game um, of that three, three game spell I was alluding to earlier was Derby away when we got beat 4-1, which for me was probably the best support I've ever been involved with. Um you know, I've mentioned before, three players sent off, Terry Mack sent off, we got hammered 4-1, but we put up a huge fight on and off the pitch. And uh, that was just a remarkable show of defiance and support from the, ter- uh, you know, from the, when it was a seat uh, behind the goal. But the, um, the the comeback with that was because a couple of fans were uh, throwing seats onto the pitch and uh, invaded the pitch and things like that at Derby. So what Leicester did is, they, they put us down the side, the seat, seated area on the side of the, the pitch, and they put up a fence in front of the UE end. So it was the only... Um, they had just put it up just for that that game because they thought if Newcastle did go down, that would probably riot or something like that, which just goes to show the difference in football then compared to what it is now. Um, you know, that, that, that they were genuinely worried that we would kick off and, and cause trouble. So... So, anyways, we're, uh, we're going down with the old. Um, can remember the old uh, supporters club at Haymarket, um, the Armstrong Galley. Never forget that Armstrong Galley coaches. Went down with those. Um, then were the days where I didn't drink at games. Um, 
Well, when you're 13, mate, I mean, I think that's pretty understandable. <laughs> I'd have been slightly worried if you had been drinking at that point. Well, to be, to be honest, mate, the drinking started the following season. But, um, well, like, well, yeah, 14's yeah. acceptable, 13's outrageous. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, the what goes down on the coaches, it, it passed without any incident, to be honest. Um, you know, it was just straight down there. But once we got there, um, you, you could sense the expectation was it was basically win or bust, simple as that. But I remember um, Keegan. Keegan had said prior to the game that he was very, very confident we'll go down there and get a result. result. And at the end of the day, you know, the 15 games he had uh, managed since he had come back, he basically left the you know the destiny in our own hands, really, thanks to him. So he he believed in them. He was actually quoted as saying, um, we're capable of doing it, and I, I've always believed in them, even through all the bad times. So obviously, you must have seen some crap in them fifteen games, but uh, but simply put, if we won, we'd, we'd be safe. Uh, it doesn't matter what what happened, uh, you know, elsewhere. So as a support at that age, it was obviously you were worried, um, but I think we were confident. I think with with Kevin Keegan as a manager, I think everyone was just just simply confident. There, I couldn't agree more. It's really interesting that you say that because. Um... Even, you know, Keegan's latter career as a Newcastle manager um, after this season and obviously the, the, the real kind of, I wouldn't say breeze, but, you know, the relative ease that they're winning the league was the following year. Even uh, the three seasons at, um, well, three and a half seasons at Keegan managing the Premier League, mm-hmm. you, even even during the bad runs, you never really thought about it too much because you always just thought, well, we'll recover, we'll get something. And in every yeah. game, even if we'd lost two or three games off the spin, in fact, I'd be surprised if we ever did lose three games off the spin in a Keegan um, post-91-92 season. Um, you would never you would never go into a match thinking, oh, you, oh, we're in a bit of bad form, this is going to be tough, we might lose. You'd always still think, well, no, it's Keegan, we'll get something, we'll get something. And that was that was the beauty of him having him as a manager. It was, um, I think... The the only other time subsequently to that that I that I felt like that has been you know two seasons under Bobby Robson yeah. probably not even two seasons actually probably only the um oh two or three season goes oh one or two but was such a surprise yeah. that we did we had we, we didn't really have any expectations but the following year you know we were we became almost like comeback kings and it, it was similar under Keegan you just thought well we'll create chances we'll we'll, we'll score goals we'll be alright and um like you I was fourteen and I remember. The nerves at the Portsmouth game, beating Portsmouth, you just kind of went in. I went in that match thinking we'll get something, and then yeah. you know we go away, we go away at Leicester, and you know let me let me get your opinions on on how the Newcastle side lined up that day and how how it compared to to the Leicester team, and also you know where were Leicester in the league and how were they doing at that particular point? Well, as I said before, Leicester were going for promotion. Um, they had lost, I think, midweek. I think I'm sure it was Charlton that got beat. It was a shock result because if Leicester had a won, they would have been as good as up. But Middlesbrough. Um, and I can't remember Ipswich. Ipswich were already promoted. It was the final spot was between Leicester and uh, Middlesbrough. So again, them could have got promoted if, if Middlesbrough had screwed up at Wolves that day. So you know Le- Le- Leicester. I mean, Christ, I had uh, Tommy Wright who ended up moving to Middlesbrough uh, the following summer. He was a, a nifty little winger. He was sort of that star player that only sold David Kelly to us the previous. Uh, I think it was the previous December. Uh, Did could, Tommy Wright have? Um, he had like curtains with curly hair. Yes, yeah. curly hair curtains. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they got him from Leeds. A little little winger. They did. Yeah. And right. uh, but I had uh, Steve Walsh. Steve Walsh was uh, who ended up being there for a long time, and he's a bit of a legend at, at, uh, at Leicester because he ended up scoring, I think, the two goals at Wembley a couple of seasons later that got them eventually promoted. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure they had um, that Mills fella who ended up mar- uh, he won the European Cup at uh, Nottingham Forest and he ended up managing Gateshead a couple of seasons ago 
Um, huh? I can't remember his first name. Someone Mills. He was a fullback. Gary. Gary, Gary Mills. Mills. That's the fella. Um, but yes, I mean they had. Um, if you, but I do remember though during that season, Derby were, were bankrolled and they ended up going to uh, Leicester and, and signing Paul Kitson, who was the star striker, who obviously ended up with us a couple of years later. Um, but they, they, they sold them. Uh, can you remember a big plank called Ian Ormondroid? About six oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Ex, ex Aston Villa. Yes, That's I do, it. mate. I remember. Yeah. Well, so in part exchange, they took uh, Ian Ormondroid. And I'm sure it was a lad called Phil G. Um, Phil G, yep, Phil absolutely. G, yeah. I remember I'm, Phil G, yep. She had the two of them, plus about a million for Paul Kitson. So then getting two players and a million for Kitson. Um, but then we had done better than Derby, uh, because Derby only made the playoffs. But uh, but yeah, that that a great you know a good second division type side. The the you know the previous season they nearly got relegated um, to the third division, but this season they were up amongst it all. All, all season and bear in mind uh, Brian Little was their manager at the time as well um, and he, he had been quoted before the game saying that he hoped whatever happened um, you know things would just at the end of 90 minutes it's worked out for both teams he was being very you know diplomatic um, and he just said it would be nice if we win the first division and, and Newcastle were in you know still in this, this division so you know it was it was decent for them to see as a Geordie am, am I right am I, am I right in thinking he was a Newcastle fan Brian Little as a kid I, I, I couldn't tell you but I wouldn't be surprised I wouldn't uh. be I wouldn't be surprised but uh, our, our side right we had uh, our Tommy Wright was in goal who um, had replaced uh, Pav um, due to some indifferent displays shall we say Ray Ranson Keegan had recalled him back when he'd become the manager. It was his first... You know when we beat Bristol City 3-0 in Keegan's first game? Aye. That was Ranson's first game for a year. He was so out of favour um, under uh, Ozzy Ardiles. But Keegan brought him back. Um, he played a couple of games, got injured again, but he played the final couple of games of the season, so he was at right-back. Centre-half pairing, Kevin Scott and uh, Brian Kilplain, the captain, um, who Keegan's obviously said he's one of these most important ever signings. Now... Left back. I was quite shocked when I looked at the lineup. It was Alan Nielsen. I I was I was equally as shocked as you um, because you're going to go through the rest of the team and it just smacks of experience. Yes. And, well, but for Nielsen was such a young lad. Yeah. I, just, I just thought to myself, God, the mm-hmm. the pressure on his shoulders, and I don't even know if he was necessarily left footed either. But that's a you know that's he, a very small point. Well, he was centre half and he had played uh, right back earlier in that season, um, but. Um, he, he had tried, I remember at Derby away, and he brought in uh, Alan Thompson as left back, and he brought in Steve Watson as right back. So I don't know whether his, his philosophy then was, let's get some joys in the team. You know what I mean? But it backfired, we got beat 4 1. Um, but this game, yeah, he, he brought in Alan Nielsen probably because he had no one else. He had, he had you know, he, Ozzy Ardiles had tried to sign Paul Borden, if I remember, but we couldn't afford him. That's right. He, got him on loan, didn't he? Got him on loan. I think he played six games. But we couldn't afford him, so he went back to Swindon. Um, so Alan Nielsen was left back. Midfield, yeah, experienced me. We had Franz Carr, who had just literally come back in the side as well. Uh, he had been injured most of the season. Um, Kevin Brock, um, Liam O'Brien, and Kevin Sheedy. So a hell of a lot of experience there. Um, that was probably the best midfield he could have picked. Um, Lee Clark may have an argument with that because Lee Clark was a fantastic player but as you see he wanted to go for experience and then up front Kelly and Peacock who had formed an absolutely fantastic uh, par- it's, partnership it's very inter- it's interesting you know when you when you read those names back to me because you look at that midfield four 
And then you look at those two up front. And you look at how he performed the following season. And it, it just goes to show that, you know, for as much as our dealers was well-liked, he clearly wasn't right for the club because, you know, I mean, I know Sheedy came in under, under Keane. We didn't have Sheedy prior, prior to his arrival. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that midfield and that those two up front, I mean, I might just be getting nostalgic here, but to me, that sounds like one of the best... It's a kind of midfields and centre forward periods in the division. Yet we were, you know, battling against relegation in the final year of the season. Well, if, well, if you if you look at the team that ended up going up, or, or at least you know the eleven out of eleven at the start of the season, you know Tommy Tommy Wright featured, but then obviously he got injured, so Pav come in. You, 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 for Ranson, he played a couple of games, um, but Barry Venison replaced him. Scott, but Kilclain got ousted by Steve Howie, and Steve Howie was just phenomenal at centre half. Mm-hmm. But then you look at the left back was obviously John Beresford, but the midfield O'Brien. Uh, Sheedy. Um, after that, you carry in Precock obviously up front, but you could say Brock and Franz Carr were the only ones who were really out of favour. But um, they still played the part, didn't they, as well? That's the thing, they still played the part in the promotion season. Obviously, did. you had Clark coming through, but yeah. um, but Carr played, you know, they put it this way, both of them played enough games to get um, winners' medals at the end of the season. I, I, possibly. I, I know that we uh, sold Carr. Um, to Sheffield United, didn't we, that season? That's uh, right, the that's right. Season. And Quinn left for Coventry, which was a shock as well. But when you think of Kevin Brock, though, I, I, obviously we're digressing at the moment, but Kevin Brock still made the 1993 um, 94 um, pre season roll call, you know? If you look at the pictures and the, the, the squad pictures and the new ASIC strip when we got promoted, he's on all them pictures. It's in, I never ever thought of Kevin Brock still being there when we win the Premier League, but he, he didn't leave till the following January. But he was so out of favour then. You know, obviously Rob Lee had come in. Um, then obviously Blue Fox come in. But Kevin Brock was still around when we were in the Premier League. I just never ever thought of him like that. It's incredible. I mean, yeah. she, obviously, but, 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 as you say, we're digressing because um, Sheedy, I suppose, was ultimately replaced by Scott Sellers. But this is a this is a podcast in 82-93 season that inevitably me, you and Paul Lai, you know, <laughs> are, are, going to do, are going to do. So that's do. something hopefully they're listening to look forward to further down the line. But back to the back of this game. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you just go for it, mate? Tell me... Everything you can about the performance, um, you know, how you saw it pan out, how, uh, you know, I suppose how you felt when obviously they, they equalised um, and just uh, j- just what the whole day was like. And I suppose, you know, whether or not you were conscious of, of how results were going um, right. away from Phil Street because obviously back then, you know, nobody had Wi-Fi on the phones, nobody had a mobile phone. It was basically if somebody had a radio on the ground, you know, that's how the news would filter down, I guess. Well, the, the biggest shock about... Um the, the, the which it's, it's a shock, but it's not because back then it wouldn't have been a shock. But we played, um, it would have been John Anderson's testimonial that midweek, and Keegan put out a full strength side in a testimonial. The, the, the week leading up to the biggest game in our history, <laughs> it's just phenomenal when you think about that. You know what I'm saying? Um, and Chris Waddle, Chris Waddle played, um, and he basically was linked. Believe it or not, if we were going to stop up, he was linked with a move back to Newcastle. But oh, that would have been lovely. That would have been I mean? lovely. He, he, his contract was up at Marseille. So, but Waddle was a star, star of that, uh, that uh, John Anderson testimony. He, he was brilliant. I think he scored a couple of goals. And uh, he basically just said, you know, after the game, no doubt we'll be back by, you know, thousands. Uh, let's just hope they get a performance on the pitch to match it, match the support. And it's a cliche, but we got it. We got the performance, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm arriving at the ground. Um, there was a, Bit of an edgy atmosphere, shall we say? Um, and I don't know whether you've ever been to Philver Street, but the the the, t- the turnstiles to get into the away end, it was basically like going through someone's house. It was 
the house backed onto the the, the, the side terrace, and the, the turnstiles were just basically next door to someone's house. It was bizarre. <laughs> so so that was uh, getting in. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a, um, a, a run around the pitch. Brian Little and Kevin Keegan did it for charity. The, so they did a couple of laps of the pitch for charity before the game. I don't remember that, but it's bloody brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just it's just brilliant. They, they, they did that. Um, so the atmosphere, you could say, you know, was was quite friendly in the ground. It was it was fine. It was no Convivial. Sign. Yeah, yeah. So there's no sign of any trouble. But bear in mind, the the away end, it was seated, but it was unreserved seating. So basically, it was just any man for himself sitting anyway. But lo and behold, we may have had 1,800 official tickets, but there was no chance. There was a lot more <laughs> in there, shall we say. So you didn't get a seat. You basically park your arse on anything you could get, you know, get on. But you soon realise that no one was sitting, everyone was standing. It was basically like being on a terrace. And we, 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 uh, me, my brother, and my friend, we were in the very front row, and uh, the atmosphere was just electric. The Castle fans were just, just, it was just non-stop, non-stop support. Leicester fans, they were noisy as well. Um, but the, but the actual game, you know, we controlled it. We, we controlled the first Dominators. half. Yeah. Dominated, I think. Yeah, there wasn't many chances, but one that sticks out um, was Kevin Brock. He uh, shot for about twenty-five yards, which was tipped over the um, the bar by the keeper, Carl Muggleton. Uh, that was the keeper, and um, and then Gavin Peacock also had a, like a snapshot that clipped the upright. Um, but Leicester didn't really create much. They didn't create anything at all. And you would genuinely thought we passed and moved. Liam O'Brien was fantastic. Franz Carl for me. Was had his best game for the club this day. Um, everyone put a shift in, and then totally out of the blue, I think we we're heading towards half time. And uh, midfielder called Steve Thompson. Uh, he went to pass it back to the goalkeeper from the halfway line, but Peacock just uh, read it, and um, he just looked, glanced at the goalkeeper, but at the same time, just clipped the ball beautifully past him, and it just yeah. it seemed to take an age to go into the net, but it trickled, it, tr- it sort of bounced in, trickled in. And what one thing I always think well, was Peacock celebration. It was quite cool, you know. He, he just sort of put his arm in the air, David Kelly jumped on his back, and for such the importance of the game, I always thought his, his celebration was quite cool. It's like, yeah, we're in control. Yeah, we've got this. Whereas you would probably thought he would have went absolutely crazy and ran over to the away end, you know. Um, he was um, he was probably channeling the power of the Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> no, at that moment in time. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, I mean, there was absolute bedlam. Bedlam in the we were in the east stand it was then um, absolute bedlam and even though we were fenced in um, the there was gaps so for safety the, even though we were fenced in there was gaps so people could get out and lo and behold people were running around the pitch celebrating so you know the absolute bedlam um, he was our player of the year so you know it was fitting that he had he had scored the opening goal um, half time come and that's when things changed that's when things changed. Um, the, the we end at the side where we were, um, in the away, the home end, which was a, a, a double deck. I was sort of seated um, up 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 a tier in terraces behind the goal, and um, it was separated by just like a net. But basically, coins were coming through back and forth, um, pies, you know, uh, even bottles of piss were coming back and forth, and then things started getting nasty. Made seats were going back and forth. Um, Seats were getting demolished in both ends, and they were they were they were going back and forth. And if I'm not mistaken, someone uh, lost sight of an eye in one of their eyes that day in Newcastle end. Jesus, uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was going back going back and forth. Um, and 
Newcastle fans were sort of taking the piss. You know, I was saying Jolly Boys taking the piss now. They were singing, and as I get the chant, they were singing, it's just because you're losing, it's just because you're losing. But it was like everyone was singing and banging the seats and just defiantly singing at them. And it was just right, winding them up even more, even more. So basically the second half kicked off and things were still going off, you know. Um, there was no fighting. It was just missiles. Um, and the coppers and the supers really had no control. They just couldn't get it under control. Um, but, yeah, second... Um, Second half kicked off. Um, again, we, we were we were simply in control. We had more of the chances. As I said before, um, Franz Carl was having his best game for the club. He, he cut inside and curled one with his left left foot. It was bending at the corner, but the keeper tipped it around the post. Kevin Brock had another opportunity where he, he fired just wide. Um, David Kelly as well, I think, also. Muggleton produced a great save from yeah. David Kelly early at the start of the second half, if yeah. I remember correctly. David, yeah, David you're, you're right. Well. We were we were absolutely in control, absolutely. They just created absolutely nothing. And again, you know, ended the final minute with um, us. Clearly, it's audible on the on the footage as well, singing Newcastle, Newcastle, we'll support you evermore. And you know, them them had a, a throw in. It was a long throw came in. And Gary Mills, who I mentioned before, um, he headed it back across uh, back across the goal, and uh, Steve Walsh just came from nowhere and just bullet headed it, bullet headed it back in the net. Last minute, one one equaliser. Well, Philbert Street went berserk; it absolutely erupted. You know, you know, when you go to grounds and you hear eruptions of support, as that was an eruption, and I, no one knew the results, as you as you asked before, you know. No one knew what was going on. I don't know whether the Leicester supporters knew how Middlesbrough were getting on. We, I certainly didn't know how what the results were around the grounds. And bear in mind as well that the only, um, the only scoreboard was above our end. You couldn't see it. It was on the, on the roof of our end. So even if the results were coming through, Newcastle fans were oblivious. So Leicester, the fans invaded the pitch. They were in celebration, but a lot of them then started charging towards the Newcastle end. And it was like shit. This is going off. This this is going off. But they got they got so far. There was a couple of scuffles. A lot of Geordies, Hey, fair play. Then they jumped out. Come on. Then they wanted to give us go. They were get, going to get. Um, but they just started mopping them more than anything else. Um, it took a few minutes for the pitch to, to get clear. Um, but at this stage, there was still no real sign of um, you know what was going to happen. You know, within, within I think it was within a minute. Um, Tommy Wright collected a pass back, and. Um, Fair play to him. He didn't want to settle on the draw. He was going for the victory. Obviously, we're unaware of the results. He just punted a long ball forward. It was hope more than anything else. And everyone was just amazed because I can still see it clearly now. Steve Walsh just misjudged it. Him and Peacock running for the ball. Walsh could have tapped it back to the goalkeeper. He could have cleared it. He could have turned. But just absolute amazement. He just ended up toe-putting it past the goalkeeper. And one thing what's always stuck, stuck, out, stuck out for me is at that point... The supporters were on the touchline. They weren't all back behind the goal. <laughs> so Aye. you would have thought that one of them would have just ran and kicked the ball and stopped it going over the line. Because that has happened before. I remember, I think it was Man United Leeds back in the 70s. Uh, a Man United supporter I kicked the ball and stopped it crossing the line. So <laughs> you would have thought that, that, that someone could have done that, but they just watched the ball hit the back of the net. And uh, we, we went absolutely just berserk. Absolute bedlam. And um, we were celebrating, but by the time we stopped celebrating, we realised that their supporters were back on the pitch again, and that's that's when it that's when it uh, you know they were clearly unhindered. They just the police didn't stop them, stewards didn't stop them, 
and the all the Newcastle fans celebrating on the Cinder track, you know, they weren't really intent on violence, but by the way, they were getting it. They were getting it. And there was just fighting breaking out all over the place. Um, and at that point, me and my brother and my friend were like, shit, we need to get the back of this, this seat. We need to get the back of this stand. Because at one point, you thought the lesser fans were coming in, taking pot shots and running back out. It was it was just mental. And as a 13-year-old, I'll admit it, I was shitting myself. So, oh, you're scared for your life. Uh, I, I remember, obviously, what me and you grew up in the same era. And whilst it wasn't anywhere near as bad as it was in the kind of dark days of the 70s, yeah. I still remember it on certain occasions... Um, at away matches or even being in the Gallagher when supporters are fighting amongst themselves they're genuinely being scared at the age of sort of 11 any, anything between the sort of age of 11 and 15 when you're, you're kind of trying to find your feet as a you know I'll say it as a you, you're trying to behave like a, like, a, like a man like the people around you like these kind of big rough role models because yeah. that's what they are the role models are the only role models you've got and you're trying to kind of fit in to a certain extent but you're still a child and you are scared for, I, I remember being scared, scared for my life, and um, at, at points, I, I, you know, I recall thinking to myself, I, I actually don't want to be here. I'm, I'm trying to put a brave face in it, but really deep down, I'm, I'm panicking. And oh, I suppose that yeah. that's the similar feeling that you had. Oh, it was, it was, it was horrible, mate. Because it doesn't matter how tough you are as a thirteen-year-old when you're around your school friends, but when hairy ass blokes are running towards you, yeah. You, as I say, I was absolutely shit myself. And we've seen another friend. He was at the back. He went down with his dad. He would normally go with us. He went to all the home games with us. But he went with his dad and his dad said, there's no chance you're going down with your friends. I'm coming with you. You know, he, he knew that it could potentially be trouble. But at that age, naive, you, you never think it's going to be trouble. But uh, but yeah, it, it's funny. You mentioned, um, you know, one man for himself, really. And uh, David Kelly, it's a, a, a funny story. I, you've probably heard it, but uh, David Kelly ended up in the Newcastle end. And I imagine that one of your players shit himself, he ended up, he, he, he said in Martin Hardy's book, I've got the quote here, it's brilliant, Martin Hardy's Touching Distance book, he said, I saw the Leicester fans and thought, where do I go? So I jumped in the stand and sat down with all these Geordies going mental, celebrating. They were grabbing and hugging me and going, yes, get in, once they realised it was me. You know, and I just think that's, I'm getting goosebumps because I, I just think that's fantastic. You know? Me too, mate. Um, me too, the hair's sticking on me, the yeah. hair's sticking on my arms. Yeah. Um, I, I tell you what, you, you've probably seen the video, but, um, Keegan knew what was happening straight away. Yes. I don't know if you remember yeah. exactly how he reacted. Can you can you explain that? Yeah, well, um, he knew straight away. He, he you know he was saying to the players, he, he's, he's heard clearly saying they're going to get hurt out there. Get off! Then he shouts, "Get off! Get off!" And you can see the likes of Franz Carr jogging off. Uh, Clark had just come on as a substitute, um, and he 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 looked he looked like he was shitting himself. He was in fear. But I always remember, even though Keegan was telling players to get off, there's a good picture of Gavin Peacock and Steve Watson celebrating. Steve Watson. That's right. He wasn't in the um, he wasn't in the the squad that day. The other substitute was Peter Garland. Can you believe who uh, who was sort of brought in as a contingency plan in case we had to sell Peacock? And who came on? He came on in this game. I can't believe that yeah, he came on he in this match. Came on. Uh, I think he only featured in two games for us, and that was one of them. But um, at the time, I think Keegan brought him on to sort of uh, try and you know save the the, the victory when we're winning one nil. But uh, you know, I can't remember anything about him. I can't even see him on any of the footage. You know, that he's he's his bit part play is, is non-existent as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, it's there. He came he came on as a sub. Uh, you'll go down in history. You'll go down in history alongside the other legend that is Darren McDonough made from Darren that Matt, season. God, you will now get testing. But uh, but yes, uh, Keegan told me get off. Uh, Peacock and Watson were celebrating. O'Brien was celebrating. Um, David Kelly eventually left the pitch. But, um, you know, Keegan said, um, you know, he's been quoted, it was pandemonium. He said, the fans invaded the pitch and the game was never restarted after a goal. 
a situation I've never seen before or since. The referee must have decided it was wiser just to let things be. So I think that's clearly admitting that that game wasn't fully finished. But the last kick of the game was Steve Rogers in the back of the net, and the referee just thought, that's it. Let's just, let's just give Newcastle the victory. So who knows? I don't know how long was left. It was definitely an injury time. It could possibly have been the last kick of the, the game. But for it not to restart, you know, the game should have always restarted and then blew up. But, uh, but no, never restarted. We, we had no idea what was going on. We were still celebrating across, you know, in the, uh, in the UE end. And, um, you know, David Kelly was also had said, uh, even though the fans were scrapping, there was no fighting near me. I wasn't worried about getting hit. I mean, he must have been the only Newcastle-related person who wasn't uh, worried about getting a hit me because it was still going off. Um, you know, then at that point, that's when they brought in the riot police. Um, the riot police came in. Um, you know, they were chasing the Leicester fans across the pitch. Um, you know, horseback um, police as well. Um, you know, but no, no one still knew. No one knew what was going on. Um, I spoke to a Leicester fan called Rob. He helped me with an article that I did on uh, this game many years ago. And he admitted, he went, look, we, admit, we went on the pitch to get the game stopped. Um, I didn't, he, he says, I didn't go on looking for trouble, but you, you felt as if you, you got involved with it. Um, but loads with simply just on the pitch trying to get the game called off. Um, that was the intention. Whether it was pre-planned, he didn't admit that. But, uh, but we must have got around and they wanted the game cancelled. Um, you know, as it happens... Middlesbrough won at Wolves anyway, so it would have made no difference. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just amazing to think back in them days, twenty seven years ago, they, where fans did want to use violence to try and take control of a situation. It's incredible. It is. It's incredible. It, and I would, I would, I would, um, I would try and criticise the Leicester fans, but then you know we just recall that in nineteen um, in nineteen seventy four, I think Newcastle fans may have done something similar in an FA Cup match. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, the Forest, yeah. the Forest game, which did get null, didn't it? It didn't get a bad exactly. null. It happened to a replay. But no, um, you know, in, in, we, we in, eventually word got around that the game was. I think that I actually know it was on the Tannoy. They said that the game that that's it. The game, the game's ended. Newcastle won. Go home. So basically, we, we we were told, listen, stay in here until we've cleared the, the the lesser fans away. But it made no difference. As soon as we left, they were all over the place. There was pockets of fighting going all over. Um, you know, for me, I was just relieved to get on that bus, get on that bus, and get get out and get away. Um, a brick come through a window in my bus, which let's be honest, that's nothing really. But you, you still notice pockets of people fighting in the streets when we were when when the coaches were leaving. It was it was pretty scary. It was pretty scary stuff. Um, I looked up a couple of uh, quotes from the the journal. Um, obviously, when they did the match report on the it would have been the Monday, it said that them said an afternoon when sophisticated Newcastle showed not only character and courage in dealing with the pressure cooker environment, but also an abundance of class and composure. I think they've summarised it brilliantly. Um, we were rubbish that season. We, I think we conceded the most goals in the whole country that that season. Um, you know, but that day when it mattered, for once, the players turned up, we got the result. And as it matters, ironically, the result didn't matter. We could have got beat and still stayed up. But we went there and got the result we needed. Um, but that wasn't it though, mate. That wasn't it. The um, Obviously, because of all the trouble, there was 120 arrests. Um, and there was loads of stills, like of the, the camera's um, pictures of the people invading the pitch and they identified loads of troublemakers and they put them in the uh, Evening Chronicle and also the, the Leicester equivalent which is called the Leicester Mercury 
And there was an undercover police exercise named Operation Hawk. <laughs> they did raid, they raided houses, um, loads of court cases. So loads of loads of um, Newcastle fans had to travel back down to Leicester to go to court. And I've been informed that when the re- people realised who was who, they ended up fighting outside the court cases again. Dear <laughs> me. Unbelievable, mate. So the majority received both a fine and a ban, ban from the, the grounds. Um but yeah, it was just you know just just phenomenal, really. And again, the journal said Newcastle United will win us on and off the field. The journal was supportive of the Newcastle fans, even though when I look back now, there was a lot a lot of Newcastle there who were, let's just say, part of firms, and they went down there for trouble, and and they were they were given as good as they got. But the journal said uh, the match mass pitch invasion was a quite cynical and transparently deliberate attempt by Leicester fans to prevent the visitors from claiming they just spoils. So they were basically, you know, having a go um, in Newcastle. Um, but, but yeah, um, travelled home. It was like getting back to Newcastle was brilliant because you could just see that the city was bouncing. Um, those were the days where, you know, I wasn't obviously drinking around the post, but you could just sense the atmosphere was brilliant around the city. We had stopped up. Keegan had saved us. And uh, the most important thing then was Keegan's time was up. He had only signed it. A contract until the end of the season. That was on his, his. You know, he wanted that as well. He said, "Look, don't ties down on a on a two year contract or a three year whatever he was offered." He went, "Let's revisit the end of the season because if we go down, you won't be able to afford to pay us off." You know, so fair play to Keegan. You know, um, so then it was a case of, okay, we've done our job. Um, how we're gonna how we're gonna move forward and wake up the sleeping giant, as as Keegan said. But I always remember uh, Terry McDermott afterwards. Um, his his um, his interview said he enjoyed that day bigger than more than winning any European Cup. I mean, a lot of a lot of things can be you know being made a little bit more dramatic. But you know, he said he got a lot of pride from it because he knew what it meant to all the people up here. Um, you know, he said we weren't expected to get out of trouble, but we but we were out of trouble. We were in with the players that were hard, but that was like winning the European Cup when we stopped up. So. You know, you see the the importance for someone like Terry McDermott, who you know was European Cup winner. He had won the Player of the Season, um, the the English Footballer of the Year. You know, fantastic achievements at Liverpool. And for him to say that just goes to show how much it meant to him. Um, you know, but but yeah, the the biggest challenge now was keeping Terry Mack and uh, trying to hold on to our star players who were clearly Kevin Peacock and Kevin Scott. And uh, I always remember Kevin Scott to talk, and a few years later, he said uh, him and Peacock were seen as contract rebels because uh, they basically said, we want to see the, our ambition matched. Um, and I think he admitted, Kevin Scott, that Keegan didn't really forgive him, and that's probably why Keegan used him you know, to get back up, played a part in the Premier League for the first half, but he, always wanted, he was probably one of the ones where he thought, right, well, he's good, but he's not that good. And uh, lo and behold, Scott was sold, and uh, Darren Peacock coming, didn't he? So, he did. but yeah, mate, just just a just a, a fantastic day. I mean, obviously we beat Man United five 0 We beat Barcelona three two. We've had semi finals, which were brilliant, brilliant, brilliant days. But this one for me, um, this one stands out. This 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 one's probably going to be the one where I would, I would take with us when I pop off this earth. You know, it was just a a, fan, a fantastic day. And and Keegan got Keegan got it right. Um, you know, he used a hell of a lot of players in the M sixteen games. But when the in the last two games he got he got it right. 
Mate, you know what? I couldn't. I couldn't agree with you more. I think, um, as I mentioned at the start of this, it's it's a seminal game, and you know we look at that match, and then subsequently the summer that followed, and then the season that followed, and the seasons after that. I mean, you know that that the cliched saying, the rest is history. It genuine. It genuinely was. Um, and another observation is um, that behaviour by both sets of fans at the end of the match. You know, bearing in mind that the Premier League started the following season. Um, and this is when kind of I suppose what what, what we could label the sanitisation of of um, football started really uh, in earnest. This must have been one of the last occasions where there was this scale of violence in an English football ground. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you I don't know if I'm, I'm right there, but it, it, it must be surely right. Um, it's the, definitely the worst that I've seen. And, and, and since then, there's obviously been there've obviously been skirmishes, but the, the scale of this one yeah. and the amount of people involved. Yeah. Um, you know, any anyone who's listened to this, hopefully they'll go on. We'll put the seven minute clip yeah. that's available on YouTube in, in the, uh, the description. In like you say, you know that match you had Leicester players on the touch, uh, Leicester, Leicester fans on the on the touchline, and and even after Leicester's goal, the pitch invasion was huge. It's um, it's just something that you you know. I really don't recall seeing on that scale since then. I mean, I may be wrong. Maybe memory playing tricks on me, but um, no. aye, it's it's interesting. We're kind of it's almost like it that was ninety two and it hit this kind of peak, mm. um, and then the Premier League started and it just started to kind of drop off. I guess. Well, this is it. That that was the final season of the old second division. Uh, the Premier League started, and unfortunately, we weren't in it for the first year, but we didn't half make up for it the following year. But. But you know, it, it, football was changing. Um, the st- all the stadiums were starting to really, really kick in. You know, I, I remember the likes of Coventry had an all seat stadium already. But Arsenal, you remember the mural behind the goal um, when they used to play to play like song uh, chanting. To, oh so, no, do it with the fans. Yeah. yeah, all the fans painted on. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's be honest, Man City and other clubs do that now. But and then it was just unheard of. <laughs> you know, we took that to do piss. But uh, final word though, Gavin Peacock. Um, I know you, you. We've touched on players, France cars, best ever performance. The whole team did fantastic. But Gavin Peacock, you know, bear in mind that was his 16th league goal of the season. He scored 21 overall. He scored a couple of hat tricks that season, and that was in a team that was basically piss poor, mate. Absolutely mm. piss poor. And he also added another 18 um, in the first 39 games in all competitions the following season. So Gavin Peacock plays, as you said before, in Newcastle's history should never be forgotten either. You know, he was no. he was massively important. And uh, you know, and also I mentioned before about the, the worst uh worst defence in the league. We conceded um eighty four goals that season. Eighty four goals um in the league and ninety six overall. You know what I mean? Fantastic. That's, and uh, three three of those away to Crew Alexandra. <laughs> well, but exactly. Third, third division Crew Alexandra, which were another remarkable game. 3 0 down, come back, win 4 3. Gavin uh, Peacock hat rick. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's one of his hat ricks. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it was just, just remarkable. And bear in mind as well, that was our second win in a row. And that doesn't sound much, but because we won the following uh, the, the first 11 of the following season, the 13 league wins in a row under Kevin Hugan. Oh. Phenomenal, oh. but hey, we could talk about Keegan all night, mate. But uh, yeah, but, but, for me, it's a standout game. It's brilliant. Well, but it's well, it's not quite the final word. There are two final words, mate. I want your, I want the two words for you that pop in your head when you think of this match. Ooh, good one, mate. Good one. Um, best ever. <laughs> Perfect. We'll leave it there. Thank you, Mark. No Listeners. Problem, Hope you've enjoyed this, everyone. Please do leave comments if you want to, and um, we'll definitely reply to them. Cheers, everyone. Thanks, Norman. 
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.